You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 028, where I continue my conversation with Scott Foster, founder and president of Dominion Capital Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. So that kind of is a long way of answering the question of how do we staff our company and, and why do we why do we do things the way that we do? So. But 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 no, but the, but that was a very important explanation, and it it, it ties into so many other things. And and I want to go I, I want to go further than this, but I, I want to actually ask you a question that actually doesn't relate to short term trading. Sure. But but it's my kind of trying to understand what it is you're saying and putting into a slightly different perspective and that's relates to more generally speaking about trend following because obviously as we know you mentioned 1994 and i remember seeing you know all the all the great guys sitting lined up at, at a conference in chicago and and talking you know about a very difficult period but they were convinced that this was just you know a difficult period and things would come back but 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 let me ask you this Trends in markets in general, not necessarily short term, but just generally, is that kind of based on universal truth? Because at the end of the day, trends reflect human behavior and human behavior will never change. And what we're seeing now then, where perhaps there have been a lack of trends for a period of time, is just part of, you know, a normal cycle. Absolutely. I uh, I often express my, um, I don't say unhappiness, but I, I think trend followers could do a much better job of of explaining what they're doing. You know, everybody seems to want to be a scientist, mm. um, and nothing wrong with that. It's just that I, I it you know I gave a, a talk a few years ago in Monaco on this about um, the difference between what we would call black box and what I would call white box, mm -hmm. and and I was trying to make a differentiation between systematic some forms of systematic trading and some forms of systematic slash algorithmic trading mm -hmm. and the fact that the vast majority of what you know of people outside they're in the alternative in industry won't invest in systematic strategies because they don't feel like they have the expertise to understand them or the mathematical skills to and I was trying to make a case that well as it pertains to the vast majority of managed futures they're not black box and the reason being is what are they uh, what are they going after and I tried to make a case that uh, they're going after uh, a, a universal. Mm. When you ask a trend follower, why do you make money? Um, if they start going talking about formulas and all this type of stuff, the question is, well, you, you, you know, they're, they're really the only way they can make money is if they're trends. So the question mm. is, well, why are there trends and why ought there to be trends in the future? And a trend follower, when asked, why are you going to make money in the future? I think they should respond because trends cannot not exist. Yeah. And the question, and, you know, what exactly in particular does that mean? Well, it's what you said. It's the fact that, at least in a in a free society, mm. markets, uh, you know, markets exist uh, to create efficiencies for the greater good. And if you know, if the price of wheat, if we start running out of wheat, uh, the price has to go higher. To it has to to, to ration the remaining supply. Uh, it has to you know ration the remaining demand. It has to increase the supply. Mm. It has to incentivize people to plant more wheat because we're running out of it. And mm -hmm. if we didn't have 
you know, futures markets were created for that purpose. And without them, the prices of food would be fluctuating all over the place. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there are inefficiencies that you can arb out of the market, and there are inefficiencies that you can't arb out of a market. The ones you can't arb out of a market are natural law mm. inefficiencies, or universals, as, as, I, as you and I, you've sure. called them and I've called them. And trends are one of them. You, if, if you're running out of wheat, you can't arb that. The, the price is going higher, sure. and nobody can stop it. Unless the government steps in and subsidizes something or, or gets in the way of it, the market will go where it needs to go mm. until there is an equilibrium between the buyers and the sellers. Mm. So in theory, and this is Austrian theory, mm. that they trends are necessary. I mean, for, there are short time periods, and this is what's hard to explain to people who are following trend followers around, because usually the time periods of equilibrium are not as long as they have been. Mm. And so there are times when trend followers, they're just, you know, some of the markets just randomly are, uh, they happen to be fairly valued mm. and nothing changes that in the future. But unless, you know, we become perfect prognosticators and you know exactly how much of any given commodity is going to be needed, you know, a year from now and exactly how much supply to create to meet that need, which nobody can know that. I mean, we're tried command economies can, you know, it, it doesn't work. There's no way to plan. Mm -hmm. You know, the socialist calculation debate has, has completely devastated the idea of central planning because you don't know. How, you know, the trend will tell you what to do. The trend will tell you whether you need more wheat or you need more copper or you need more of, you know, or whatever you have until there's an equal amount so that everybody's needs are, are, are served. So yeah. right now, it, it's, you know, I think it's pretty obvious at this point to everybody uh, that, the Federal Reserve and, 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 and government intrusion in the marketplace, particularly through suppression of interest rates, has been devastating for price discovery in pretty much all freely traded markets. Mm. They're, they're not allowed to go. I mean, when you control the price of money, you control the price of everything. Mm. And when there is a threat of constant intervention uh, through regulation, taxation, and nobody really knows because nobody, I mean, the government and the Federal Reserve don't know where they're going with this. Mm. They pretend they do, but they don't. And most businessmen know they don't know, and there's no exit strategy. And so it's created incredible uh, suppression uh, of price trends, and it's created volatility with no direction. It's created all kinds, of, it's wreaked havoc on the markets. Um, but eventually, if you look at it and say, what is this ultimately? This is ultimately a price control. Right. And price controls ultimately create the exact opposite of their intended uh, effect. Yeah. The question is, how long is it going to take? The markets will eventually they'll go crazy. I mean, they're going to go to where they need to go, where they have not been allowed to go. Mm. And hopefully uh, that won't be too far in the future so that, you know, the business is still, is still around and exists <laughs> to take advantage of it. But I think it's probably closer than it's you know, been, but I probably would have said that a year ago. Hmm. Uh, sure. But I, I think it's a, it's a certainty. It's just a question of how long can the government uh, and global governments uh, keep this, you know, illusion up. Because right now, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the perception is based upon, you know, spreads, you know, yields on junk, uh, there is no risk. Yeah. You know, lowest volatility levels in fixed income, foreign exchange uh, ever. Uh, you know, stock market just a month ago had finished 40 straight days without moving a single well, a percent, which it mm. hadn't done in over 20 years. Mm. Um, the market is not pricing any risk into the, into the situation, which is uh, irrational, but That's you know, the way irrationality it yeah, can last longer than uh, a lot of firms can stay solvent. So, um, so back to the magic, the perception is there is no risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. But but let me ask you this. Well, first of all, let me just say that I can imagine with the explanation you gave about, you know, philosophy and universal truth that 
there aren't that much room in a normal due diligence questionnaire to fill out the box uh, where it says, you know, um, I, I believe in universal truth uh, as one of my founding principles. So, but let me ask you then uh, this question. If that's the case, and this is the way you develop models, which is quite different from most other managers, is your model decay, which a lot of short-term managers is uh, saying that there are mod- there is model decay in the way they uh, trade and maybe a model last two years. But, but is my understanding correct then that in fact you don't really see that as such, or at least not to the same extent? That's true. I, uh, model decay is, um, is not generally something that I worry about. Um, for me, for, uh, for a model that, that starts to underperform what it has in the past, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we tend to be a lot more qualitative about that. Um, you know, to give you an example of how like one of our models might decay as opposed to how somebody else's models, because, mm-hmm. you know, again, we're not, we're not looking at, you know, parameters in our models are not, you know, numbers with lots of decimal places to the right. Uh, they're, you know, like they're mostly binary switches. Mm-hmm. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this because it's, it's much more qualitative. It's almost like a, how a discretionary trader would trade a two or three day move in the marketplace based upon how he would feel like he's reacting to a bunch of other traders that are doing something. Yeah. Um, the decay would be something that is more tied to the structure of the marketplace and, and have very little to do with parameter sets or um, other things. Like, for example, years ago, quite a long time ago, uh, you know, we had uh, some models that were trading off where the opening price was. Mm-hmm. And back at that time period and for many years prior to that, there was a real psychology about a gap. Right. And, even, and a lot of people written about it, you know, will the gap be closed? Will this happen? And so forth. And, and I had some models that I thought that there was a reason why there would be under certain conditions overreaction on the open. Right. And then I would go against that. It was part of you know some some it was part of our reversion strategies repertoires, and it tied out to this particular psychology of what was going on here. And it over time that model started to deteriorate, mm-hmm. and you get to a point where you know you're always reviewing performance everywhere, like okay, what's going on here? And then the light bulb goes off. Well, as you know, electronic trading and off hours and Globex started to become more and more uh, prevalent, and as uh, more people in, in Europe and Asia were having access to the same or similar markets, risk was being able to be transferred more effectively around the clock. Right. So the, the pent up demand on the open was slowly diminishing. I mean, there still is some, mm. but it's usually retail people executing on the open while you know the professionals pull all their orders and they create the big zigzag in the first you know ten minutes. But it's not; it's a it's a different character than it than it used to have. And so, when we understand this is the psychology that we're, we're you know we're doing, we're, we're tying this out to this one principle. But the market structure itself is no longer offering us the opportunity to utilize that principle in this construct. Then we make an adjustment to it, mm. um, which is not as uh, that type of thing isn't happening. It's not like all of our different models. We think that every day they're slightly deteriorating by, you know, 0.01%. And then, you know, it's always a clock that we have to, and don't, I don't think of that way at all. As a matter of fact, I, I can, you know, nothing is more surprising to me when I dust off a model that I haven't even touched in 15 years and it's at new equity highs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, that makes you feel great. Most of the times that I can track back to underperformance 
uh, or poor performance for any stretch of time uh, rarely, rarely can be tied to a bad parameter set. Um, usually it's tied to a, a principle that wasn't fully uh, uh, tied out or even worse, which is, you know, you're always balancing trying to, uh, to, to, to make decisions about things, but, you know, one of the biggest risks is, you know, changing anything about your models. Mm. Uh, because you can have incredible slippage. You, you know, you stop trading one model because it's doing poorly, and then you add one that's doing well, but then all of a sudden the one that you just dumped has a huge recovery, and the one you got in does poorly. And all you have to do is do that a couple times in succession, and you're looking at double your max drawdown, and all your clients are going away. Hmm. So the way of, you know a process by which you you uh, implement changes is is as important as the changes themselves. But a big part of that is understanding what's what's driving the changes because hmm. things that are coming from a, a universal are a lot different than things that are coming from the particulars. Hmm. Uh, in, my, in my opinion, anyway. It's quite interesting because obviously one of the changes that you made, you said early on, um, was you know caused by the introduction of the euro, and so you could say that the the markets or the opportunities set changed. It wasn't so much human behavior that changed, just the fact that there were right. fewer markets. But, but it's interesting to note that, I mean, you've actually done really, really well in the last few years at a time where many people haven't done so well, first of all, but also um, at a time where you could actually argue that, as you mentioned, markets have been somewhat influenced by other factors than normal free behavior because of the actions of the Fed and and the uh, you know other central banks. So it's just, I mean, I don't know whether it means anything, um, but it's just an interesting observation when I look at your track record that, you know, even in a situation where human behavior may not be so freely expressed uh, given these constraints that, um, you know, your models have uh, seemed to cope with that very well. Well, we've been able, you know, one of the, it's been a difficult environment. When we were doing, um, we had a bad year in 2010, but prior to that, even with some of the chaos going on, we were doing better than the indices and averages. Mm. Um, and I was very comfortable with um, what we what we had built in 2000. I mean, what was it was like a two-year project to build the Sapphire program, and it was a lot about having a different way to allocate to markets and having a different way of uh, approaching portfolio, but having all those elements tie back, you know, prior to that, like in the global financial, I was operating under, you know, under some of these psychological principles for the individual trading, but my portfolio construction, my allocation, my risk had nothing to do with the psychology. It, right. it, it, it was not integrated. It wasn't tied to a universal. It wasn't, it was not, uh, and ultimately you end up paying the price because you don't, you don't realize what you're, you know, until it starts to hurt you, you don't realize that you're doing something that you had no, you didn't have a reason for doing it. Right. I mean, you just, you just uh, took the status quo or you just thought, well, I'll just do X. And so I knew that we needed some different markets, additional markets in the portfolio, but I also knew that we needed to, to uh, have a, uh, an allocation scheme that was different. And so, you know, and philosophically, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when I lived in Chicago and had friends down on the floor, if they were, you know, trading uh, soybeans and the soybeans were dead, they'd walk over and start trading bonds. Sure. You know, to, to be opportunistic and realizing that just because we're, we're focusing on these emotional things, there are times where a market is clearly telling you this market is not particularly subject to those types of emotional movements because it's in a state of equilibrium. Nobody right. is, you know, and then if something does happen to jolt it out of equilibrium, then it may enter into a type of environment where it's, it's expressing these characteristics that we specifically are looking for. Mm. And so we've learned to become extremely, uh, we always were a low volume 
trader. Mm. But over the years, we've become even more low volume. Like, for example, I mean, the last, you know, five, six, seven years, we've averaged about 1,700 round turns per million. Mm. That's, you know, as you know, incredibly low for short term sure, trading. Term and, trading yeah. and some are, you know, I think the average would probably be closer to five or 6,000, but there's a lot of traders that are doing 10 to 15,000 round turns. Mm. But, I mean, that to me, that sounds a little bit like, in a sense, that you're filtering out the markets that where essentially there are no opportunities, or as you say, they're in equilibrium. But, but I want you to try and kind of explain that, uh, you know, from a system design point of view. How do you, how do you, how do you get to that point? Because at the end of the day, we need to bridge the gap between philosophy and coding, <laughs> or rules. Right. Uh, and and so, how do we do that? How 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 does it actually work? Uh, when you look at your program and the structure and 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 and, and doing all of this in, in practice, the way it works for us, and, and again, it's you know we do a lot of things that you know I guess some of them I'm, I'm I'm very comfortable in sharing only because they a lot of them just don't have any application to to other people's strategies. Sure, sure. Um, because of what drives them. I mean, you could implement some things, but the driver behind it is really what makes it work or not work. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in, the, in creating the program, the, the Sapphire program, it, it took a long time to create it. And, and you know, that's kind of why there's a, a, there's a, a longer, flatter time period than I would have liked to have had in the early 2000s in a transition. And there are a variety of reasons for that, but the biggest one was I, uh, my main programmer at the time, uh, um, left. Sure. His, uh, his wife was from Puerto Rico and was not particularly thrilled with living in northern Michigan. <laughs> so she wanted to head to the, where the sun was and I understood. I mean, um, but the reprogram, I'm trying to do some very unusual things in terms of how you go about allocating rather than just saying, here's the portfolio. It's how do you make it dynamic by using principles and how do you quantify things and what can be quantified? And, you know, I get asked questions like this often when they say, well, you, you've, you've listed a whole slew of qualitative things. How do you get from qualitative to quantitative? Mm. How, can this, how can you ever systematize half these things you're talking about into something objective that you know, resembles this? You know, it's like trying to get someone to quantify you know, how happy are you? Is it a six or a seven or a nine? You know, it, it's very, very difficult to do that. And so how do you, go by, how do you, how do you make that transition? Well, for, for allocation purposes, we, we look at it in the sense that we believe that uh, in terms of what I was just talking about, about the environments, it's just not like, okay, this is a good environment, this is a bad environment. Things don't, um, because the environments for us that are constructive are, are ones in which a market is, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, it's emotionally charged. There are a lot of people with strong opinions and a lot of vested interest if the market moves too much one way or the other. And so everybody's on pins and needles watching this thing right. and they're concerned about which way it's going to go. And there's some uncertainty about it. So there's a, a real need to, you know, transfer risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's obvious because what the market will do when that happens, as, and everybody knows this, is volatility tends to increase. And the increase in volatility is, you know, starting to tell you that something is very interesting. Now, the interesting thing about volatility, however, is that volatility um, is both very persistent and yet mean reverting. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that's simply because volatility, as we know it, generally is associated with uncertainty. And, and the only thing that's uncertain are people's perceptions of things. And people's perceptions don't, you know, and unless you have, uh, you know, some type of uh, significant illness, you don't get really happy one minute and really sad the next and really happy the next minute and sad. 
you transition. I mean, volatility in markets tends to trend higher over months, and it trends low over months as people are constantly uh, reassessing and, and, and figuring out what's going on and becoming comfortable with what's going on or that whatever is going on is resolving itself. Mm-hmm. And so volatility doesn't spike one month in crude oil and then drop the next month and spike one month and drop. It trends higher and trends lower, yet it also mean reverts because there are limits on high and low volatility. This, you know, is not just simply looking at past history. I mean, intuitively, if, if, if volatility is tied to human behavior, that's what you would expect it to be. Mm. I mean, your, your human behavior and emotion, you know, tends to go from very sedate to there's a certain amount of excitability that you can pretty much maximum express. Uh, and you're going to, you know, bounce back and forth in between those. Uh, and it's going to trend up and trend down and, and, and so forth. So if that's true... If that is the nature, of, and, and you know, most people won't debate with me about that simply because empirically it can be shown to be true so easily. Sure. But there's a, you know, for me, and there's got to be a reason behind that, not just because that's what the data says. But hmm. if that's true, then we, we generally know that we're very streaky in our trading. That when a market comes into play, we may make money in a particular market for you know three, four, five months in a row, and then if it if whatever conflicts that are erupting in that market become to be resolved, and there's less emotional uh, less of an emotional footprint in that market, it usually corresponds with a pattern of volatility. So for us, we, we're very certain of this persistence in our performance because of human nature. Right. It's not because we've gone back and looked and said, gee, what, this is really interesting. You know, we tend to make money three months in a row and then we, you know, we lose for two and then we make it for six and then we lose for four. And then we, you know, we know why it happens. Mm-hmm. But if something is persistent, it's an inefficiency, it's exploitable. And if it's a natural law inefficiency, it can't be arbed away so we can exploit it without having a negative impact on our trading. And so we exploit it by, as we, we lose money as a market becomes more, uh, more in, you know, less emotional right. and, and, and so forth. And so as we lose money in an individual model of market, it goes into a, a deleveraging phase and we start taking money off the table. You know, I'm a blackjack player, and, and I used to get you know have a lot of fun counting cards and doing all that stuff. Uh, and uh, you know, basically, what your, your money management is is that you you, you want to keep a minimum bet on the table until the odds are in your favor, and then you want to take the rubber band off the bankroll. Mm. Well, we know that when when this footprint is starting to deteriorate in the marketplace for us, it's going to be persistent, and so we feel very comfortable deallocating to that model slash market as that's happening. Now, if something intervenes suddenly and comes in and hits that market and create, makes it excitable again, some new fundamental or something or whatever it is, every winning trade from there will reallocate it back up until it gets back up to a full allocation scheme. This is something that would be difficult for a trend follower to do, even though they're operating off of uh, a solid principle. And, mm. you know, and I, I believe firmly in trend following. Sure, sure. I've designed my own systems, traded with my own money. I've worked for a firm and all that. But in in trend following, because the nature of your, your, your winning percentage and your payoff and so forth, it's very, very difficult to keep deallocating to a market and then possibly miss the one huge trade yeah. you know, where you deallocate. But that is not something that I have to worry about. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, there's very, very little slippage in my doing that. Well, the benefit beside, you know, there are bigger benefits to this type of money management scheme of being opportunistic where, you know, for a while, some markets can just get quiet and, and not cooperate. And yeah, it's great to be deallocated to them for a while. But the more important aspect to it is, is that you don't end up um, having all the post-dictive errors in portfolio construction and in uh, adjustments to your models. 
And this is this was like the bigger reason philosophically of why I went in this direction. Mm-hmm. We all know that you know now everybody you know. Listen to CNBC. Anybody who's putting together any kind of portfolio has gold and silver and this and that and the other thing. Well, ten years ago, before the bull market started, nobody did. Right. You know, if this is all post-dictive. You're, you're, you know, most it's very easy as a trader to design a portfolio simply because it's the one that worked best in the past. Yeah. But if you were putting together a portfolio and say, you know, 1982, what would it look like? Mm. You know, well, stock indices were to start trading a few months later. You know, we just got a couple of bond contracts. You know, we don't have a lot of, uh, there's almost almost no international exposure. The question is, how do you get from 1982 to yesterday? Right. What is the process by which you would have kept changing that portfolio? So all the, it's not someday you just walk in and say, you know what, we've got to add 40 foreign markets. Or, hey, you know what, we need stock indices. And, or, or we need, you know, any of these new markets. Or we need, or how do we put the portfolio together? So I tried to envision a, a process by which that could actually take place. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you start... This portfolio at this date, how would it naturally walk forward in, in a, you know, I guess you could call it a systematic way, but, you know, I look at it more as a principally driven way so that you're not subjecting yourself to making post-dictive errors where you're like, you have a bias against some market and after a while it's like it's been making money and you're not trading it. So you finally you throw it in mm. right at the top, you know, mm. and then it starts losing money. Um, I remember vividly because, like I said, back in my, in the, the first days of Dominion, I had a, just, I had no thought out process of, of allocation uh, to, to the markets and the sectors uh, or even to risk. And it's 94 and I start trading the, uh, you know, the British pound and I start, you know, I'm losing and, and we're raising money and I'm losing more. And I, I think I got up to, I don't know what it was, 18, 20, 25 million dollars in losses and just cable. And I'm banging my head against the wall and I'm thinking, you know what, maybe Maybe something's changed in this market. Maybe after the uh, you know the great uh, realignment of '92, uh, when you know sure. Soros, you know, you know, and maybe there's something here. I don't know. And 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 often at times when a market doesn't behave in the way that you're accustomed accustomed to it behaving, it you can you can figure out what it is down the road. But you've lost a lot of money in the process. Mm. But then, as a trader, you know, having done it so many times before, if you suddenly pull it out of the portfolio, it's going to go on a tear. And so you're, you're in this conundrum. What do I do? Do I leave it? Do I do, you know, and it makes, it really uh, toys with you when you have disappointing things, different disappointing in- instruments and disappointing particular models in certain instruments. And you don't know, am I just going to keep trading this and lose money forever? Or is this, is there something, you know, in this market that's different or is this just a regular drawdown? So mm-hmm. when we bought our portfolio, it walks forward and it automatically handles that. So if a market were to turn, you know, to be a horrible trading market for five years in a row, our models would have it deallocated down to a, a certain level, and then it drops out of the, our portfolio and goes into a, just a simulation basket until it improves enough to be worthy to go back in, meaning until it comes back in play and people are interested in transferring risk in this market, and it has those characteristics. So a market can be out of the portfolio um, for years where you're happy that it is out of the portfolio. And I'll give you an example. Like, uh, I don't know when it was. What was it 2008 maybe or nine? Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember when... Uh, all of a sudden, the sugar market got really exciting, mm-hmm. and sugar had been out of the portfolio. I think I don't think it, I'm not even sure if we traded it ever in yeah. the Sapphire program. But all of a sudden, you know, the model says, "Hey, take a look at this. People in this market are really, uh, you know, this is showing all the signs of an emotional market." And all of a sudden, our models want to give it some money. Uh, it gets some money, and we've made uh, a good deal of money in about six months, and then. 
it started to say it's not really, uh, you know, it's going back to the way it was before, and, and I don't think we've traded it since. But uh, that's kind of in theory how it can help kill those postictive problems as well as operate under a principle that we think ties into the emotion, sure. uh, the emotional universal that we're doing. Sure. And, and, and what allows you to do that is the fact that you're short term. You have many trades, many observations uh, on like a longer term manager where essentially if you were doing that and you were waiting for some level of profitability uh, in, in, in the signals, uh, you might actually end up you know, being way too late because you have so few observations. Correct. One of the other benefits that just came to mind, obviously benefits, but things that, that uh, have really been beneficial to us is taking this more you know, deductive uh, approach to research and not being so data dependent mm. um, has enabled us to be able to um, you know, analyze and look at a few adjustments um, you know, post-08, particularly post-2010, when we had uh, you know, the worst year, uh, well, the worst year I've ever had as a trader. Mm -hmm. We were down 9%. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've ever lost more than, I think we had a down four at some point prior to that. Everything other than that's been like at most down one. Mm -hmm. But the problem for a lot of you know, highly um, quantitative traders is that you get into this weird environment that we're in and they don't have enough data to try to figure out how to trade it. Yeah. I mean, and so until we get, you know, what do we need to get 10 years into this kind of environment before you can, you know, you can look at the data and say, okay, based on how those markets are trading, this is how we're going to trade them. Um, but since we're not, we're just trading principle, I can look at it and say, am I applying the principle? What's changed in the application? No different. I mean, you brought it up earlier about the, you know, it wasn't that the theory changed. The way it was structured has changed and you need to adapt to the structure. But the, the same philosophy, the same psychology is operating. And what's been going on, obviously, in the, in the crisis has been the political intrusion in the marketplace. Mm. What we learned, you know, diff with a bit of difficulty in 2010, because our drawdown occurred right during a time of QE2, the midterm elections, and there was one other big deal going on at the time. Again, they were all politically oriented, yeah. which created a certain type of noise that was particularly toxic for us. Mm. And it was very frustrating to me because... In 2009, we had a little bit of a rough run in the beginning of 2009, but we still salvaged the year. We were up five, I think, and everybody else was down five or mm -hmm. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, sure. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe this doesn't really mean anything. And I can, I can sense and I can feel and I can taste and touch and smell that there's some, the influence on the markets here is more than I had anticipated. In 2010, it was obvious that it was more than I'd anticipated because mm -hmm. we went into that down downdraft. Mm. And what I had done in 2009 was create a small type of a way to try to avoid what, what I was beginning to call bad volatility. Because mm -hmm. volatility, you know, what I think I'm getting from volatility is, you know, it's, it should be telling me something. Markets increase in volatility before they either reverse or before they really are going to take off. Mm. Uh, and that's telling you something. It's a feedback loop, just like momentum tells you something, trend tells you something, everything tells you something if you're open to what it's trying to tell you. And that was there was no connection between the two and the political intrusion. So the feedback loop for for pretty much all types of systematic trading, uh, particularly those that are relying on some of these universals, is uh, was getting blurred. Mm. So we get the volatility, but that there'd be no movement after you just get knocked in and out of the position, and nothing yeah. will happen. Yeah. And so I said, how do I? You know, I'm not going to build a system that's designed to do something different than what we do. Perhaps my perception of what's going on is is incorrect. And Literally, it was one of those aha moments. I mean, it, it literally, from uh, in 2010, 
in about a, a one week time period, uh, it all came to me of what I was doing. I, I was battling the markets in the wrong way. I was doing, I think, what everybody else was doing at the time, which was thinking of that volatility as being bad, right. trying to figure out how to avoid it right. so that I can get the true signals, I can get the ones that are actually telling me you know, what the market is, it wants to tell me. Sure. And I thought to myself, uh, it occurred to me immediately, that is such the wrong way, at least for me, to think about the problem or to, to frame the problem. The market's behaving irrationally. Sure. Theor theoretically, it's impossible to create a filter to stop it because, by definition, it will not repeat in the same fashion. In other words, if somebody goes every day and gets coffee uh, and then throws it on the ground, you might think that that's silly. But if they do it every day, you don't think much about it. <laughs> You know, you think people are crazy when they do unpredictable things, yeah. and they can, they, they, you know, you don't know what they're going to do. When they're going to walk outside with a garbage can, you know, filled with uh, goldfish or something. By nature, you know, the, the the irrationality side of it, the universality of that irrationality side, pretty much says that you can't create a filter to stop it. Mm. But then I thought to myself, if it's actual volatility and its movement, it is a reflection of you know human action. Mm. So what is it telling us? Mm. And then I began to to realize that it's telling us the same thing from a political perspective rather than a market perspective. Right. And, you know, the way that I try to explain that to people is that in, you know, we're looking at these, these, these momentum shifts in the marketplace. Yeah. But we require very specific setups because we want to, you know, in prospect theory, we want people to be under duress when we're doing our trading. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, you know, very specific. We just don't simply trade momentum because momentum happens. We trade it when it's in a particular environment under a particular setup under very particular situations yeah but the um, the marketplace uh, the way we, we explain that is that the the when a market begins to increase in momentum to us that's telling us that there's urgency in the marketplace mm. the people are less concerned about you know the price that they execute they're just concerned to execute you know it's right. like get me in or get, get me out order yeah and, and and so they're being emotionally impacted. They're not getting their price. They're just throwing the towel in, or they're having to adjust, or they mispriced the market, or whatever. It's telling us that the people are doing things in a way that they wouldn't prefer to do them, mm -hmm. but they're having to do them that way. So this this momentum increase is a feedback loop because if you're trading, you know, for example, wheat, and you're watching the wheat market, and the movement in the wheat market is a sum total of all the people who are watching the wheat market, who know what's going on in wheat, who have ties to the cash, and, and you're watching it and you're doing it, and it's a feedback loop of everything all the market participants know about wheat. Mm. And so generally when you get certain bits of momentum or volatility, it's significant because all those people together usually don't misprice the market so dramatically that it just creates chaos. Uh, that's not normally the way it works. There are mispricings, but they tend to be, you know, small to medium, not gargantuan, like, oh geez, wheat really should be double the price, or mm. you know, you know, maybe a small mis you know, mispricing. But what's happened when the government got involved is that now everybody's watching the wheat market, but it's no longer a feedback loop of the wheat market. It's a feedback loop of, oh, what did Bernanke say? Right. What did so-and-so say? And then the wheat trader watches you know, the Fed announcement and then runs over and it expresses himself in wheat. Yeah. The problem is that, that that may or may not actually match the fundamentals of wheat. Sure. So as soon as the political thing fades away, the market reverts back, and so you're getting an, you're getting an impact on the market from a different feedback loop. However, it's psychological in nature. So it immediately occurred to me, what's the difference between the two? There is a difference, but how can I capture that difference? Yeah. And we developed a way to broaden, instead of pull back from political volatility, we decided to expand and accept it. And uh, 
you know, since we it took a year of very creative programming to get that kind of subjective idea in play in the marketplace, but uh, you know, being we're up twenty last year and ten the year before, and what most people would consider to be in brutally difficult short-term trading conditions, mm. and I think it was mostly capturing the moves that are not normal. I and mean, when it, when a market moves, there were so many like twenty percent moves in the marketplace in two thousand thirteen that happened in like nine to twelve trading days. Mm. But then they went right back. I mean, it was too short for trend followers to capture it because it, it, a market normally would never never have that type of price movement because it would never have been so mispriced and then go back to what it was doing and then have it happen again. But it's, it is a psychology in the marketplace that isn't too different from a feedback loop of a market, but it's a feedback loop of a different type and it can be exploited. So, mm. so, so if I'm trying to, to understand what you're saying, clearly the norm would try and you know, and, and would be to get some kind of follow through from, from the point of entry and to capture, you know, a two day, three day move. Um, but obviously what, what, what I've also observed, you know, uh, myself from the markets in the last few years is that certainly in, 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 in some markets, maybe not all, but there really has been a lack of follow through, maybe because of, of the noise of the, of the media and statements and this and that. So, The changes that you um, made, and I'm, I'm just I'm just guessing here, but is that more to do with the fact that you don't just look for the follow through or the momentum in a direction, but actually now you're also trying to capture the the, the mean reversion side of things when things don't work out? Correct. We're casting a wider net to allow for the greater degree of variation and the amplitude of these price movements because it, it doesn't take for for the psychology of the market to, to you know we've always been an under five day trader with our mm. and, yeah you know we're rarely ever making it five days out but usually you know two to three and the reason for that which makes complete sense to us is that's about all the time it takes for all the market participants to react either in favor of or to de or to deny the movement is you know has any legitimacy right And so, as the psychology rolls around the globe, and everybody adjusts to the new price level due to the mispricing, or the you know, or, or what have you, or the everybody having to exit a position, um, and so I've always been asked the question: Well, if the market just keeps going, why don't you just hang on to it and, and, mm -hmm. and ride it for another week or two if it's in the right direction? And the point is that we don't do that for two reasons: one is we're not looking to capture trend, and that's what that would be; but two, momentum can only exist generally in a short time frame because. For, in, for momentum to increase, it's got to be like, you know, the market's up 1%, the next day it needs to be up 2%, the next day up 4%. I mean, those aren't not exact numbers, but the point mm. being is that it has to keep going. And it, it will exhaust itself literally within, you know, for momentum to increase for five straight days is, is almost impossible. Mm. So the psychology behind the momentum, and then if it starts to wane, uh, then it, it will cause you to, you know, to, to reassess what you're doing. So we... For us, the momentum has to continue, but it, by out of necessity, it's only going to go this far. Now, the problem is that that's the way it, it exists naturally in a, uh, um, in, a, in a natural feedback loop to a regular market. But the political feedback is a little bit different because it has no tether. There's nothing that, that says that it can't change. So what happened, I mean, if, if there's a, a sudden adjustment in the price of wheat, pretty soon everybody can figure all the possible outcomes and you can get that re resolved within that three-day time period. Uh, a lot of the markets that are being impacted by uh, the Fed and by regulation and so forth, they're not tethered by that, so they, they have some very un weird characteristics. 
they're, they're too sharp uh, of movement and too much of a retracement after the sharp movement for a trend follower to catch. But they're completely out of character for really short-term guys hmm. because that's not normal. I mean, you, you, if you get in and you get a move, you, you know, you expect, oh, if I buy on this little bit of a move, I'm going to capture, you know, uh, you know, 10 ticks or something in the bond market or maybe 20 ticks. You don't think you're going to capture like four handles. Hmm. But if you get a sudden shock to the system, sure. and that and that's the way the markets you know are reacting. And so, um, how do you find a, a middle ground? I mean, it would you know it'd be like a six-hour conversation to try to explain it. And um, but it can be done, and I think we've done it. Uh, and but you know, I know that everybody's always concerned about making adjustments to trades and making adjustments to your strategy. And and I think everybody's been pleased with with the, the, the adjustments we've made because we haven't changed any models. We've changed how we implement the models. No parameter changes, no anything on that line. We've just lined them up differently on the table okay. and how we throw it at the market and how we view time and how we view risk and, and, and how everything works together. So it, and it's worked out well. Um, and, you know, we were having a good run prior to that and a good run, you know, we've had a good run since. I think we've, you know, beat the long and short-term averages five out of the last six years. So sure. on alpha generation, we've been okay. But I always challenge people if you're concerned you know, do what I always say, which is look at our correlations. Our mm. correlations haven't changed at, at all. And our correlations are not just the fact that we're, you know, non-correlated to everybody, every benchmark, manager, fund, strategy, market that you can find. It's that we have very specific negative correlations at extremes, mm. which, you know, that's the way, I, you know, if somebody can't, you know, they can't, I don't explain it well enough to, for them to see the how prospect theory and decision making under duress impacts our overall strategy. Um, then look at the look at the data then. Sure, sure. Because if it, when other people are having rough times, that's when we ought to be making money. If if we're doing what we say we're doing, and those correlations at the extremes haven't changed at all. Mm. What's what's I mean in 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 trend following, many people actually say that position sizing is. Is actually probably more important than you know the entry point and the exit point because of the the time frame. What what would you say is the most important of those three entry exit position sizing when it comes to short term trading? For you know, I can't speak for everybody in the short term space because I think a lot of people would probably disagree with me. Mm. For me, it, it, the the Entry level, you know, whether you have some parameter that speeds it up or slows it down, and consequently the same thing on the exit. Mm. Um, I, you know, I could roll the dice on any of those things in, in my model. What makes the biggest difference is when do you present yourself to the market to trade? Right. Um, you know, when for us, since we are looking very specifically for certain things, if we, you know, last year, like I said, we did, you know, what, 1,700 round turns, mm. and we make 20% of that of all fees. The interesting aspect of it is, is that we're having the same profit per trade as a good year for a trend follower, and a lot of trend followers trade more round turns than that. Hmm. So we're actually making more money per trade than most longer-term traders, and we can only do that by being incredibly selective hmm. when we trade. And you know, we may not get an order. Uh, you know, we didn't have an order for a U.S. Treasury bond for the first four months of the year. I mean, what trader doesn't have an order for Treasury bonds? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, you know, it's just, and that's the way we approach the world, and so it 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 it, it, it matters the most, mm. and you know that's a good portion of what um, uh, it's it's it was a it was a continuum of an idea that we had been working on that really helped us out 
after we had a difficult year in 2010. It was one of those, I can't believe I didn't see this. Hmm. I can't believe I can see this was a logical extension of what we're doing. It's just that when you never had to do it, because the markets never got that weird, you, you would never think about, you know, uh, you know all, all the things in life that you think that was an obvious solution to the problem. It's like, well, until the problem was made obvious, you know, until sure. you actually had to wrestle with the problem, you don't, even, you don't think about it. Sure. How many models or setups, however you would describe it, do you uh, run in, in the Sapphire program? We have the same, what we call our, you know, we've always used the terminology that we have, you know, two strategies in, in the portfolio. One is directional momentum and one is mean reverting momentum. Right. And that, you know, if I just stopped at that, that might describe, you know, at least a dozen other short-term traders. Right. Um, so obviously, even though that's the easiest way technically, you know, it's like I don't even, you know, I don't even particularly prefer to be called a short-term trader because, you know, short-term is not a strategy. It's just a time frame. Sure. And, you know, and what we do compared to other short-term traders is this, it'd be like putting, you know, a stock trader and, uh, you know, a rental property. I mean, they're just they're apples and oranges. Mm. And also, in a sense, whether these setups, because we are dealing with human behavior, whether they're the same regardless of which markets, whether they apply to all markets. They're all they're the same for every market. We don't have any special anything for okay. any one given market. Okay. We uh, we have the as I said the two strategies, but within those strategies, we have a variety of, uh, of variations. And the variations are based upon uh, different persistencies that we see in the marketplace. They're not there for um, any kind of serious diversification because mm. they're not. Um, we can get more diversification in other ways. For example, um, for us, it's as important, actually it's more important than the parameters of the model or even the particular setups as to what, what data are we analyzing. Mm. I mean, are we looking at 24-hour data? Are we looking for pit session? Are we looking for half of the pit session? Are we looking for the pit session plus two hours? We look at how we analyze data as being incredibly important because the, for us, the data has very specific feedback implications to what we're trying to find in the data. Okay. So, for example, for us, I know that some traders are very happy you know, to exit positions or to enter positions at, you know, at certain hours that we would never consider doing it because we don't believe the market has the information we need. They're wow. probably doing it for the exact opposite reason because the market's mispriced because it doesn't have the information. Mm. Yeah. That, that, you know, to give you a small idea how significant this is for us, we trade the Nikkei, Nikkei on the Symex and we trade the Nikkei Osaka yeah. contract. Other than the fact that one is two times the size of the other one, they're identical. Sure. However, we have different opening times and different closing times in those two markets mm. that are not substantial, but they are different. Mm. At least, and we we just we have no official open and close times that match anybody else's or any exchange or anything. We we like I said, we we build data to to meet what we think makes sense. Mm. But just to show you how how important that is, the two different Nikkei's just having that small amount of difference have uh, I think a a point two seven correlation. In their performance. Wow. So we, we do not have any problem at all getting non-correlation even out of the same market. We can trade multiple versions of the same market or multiple models of multiple versions. Uh, the question is why and how do you piece it together so that it makes sense with your theory and, and it's giving you what you need to know. Mm. So, so to answer your question, we, use, uh, we, use, uh, we, we make the model, we make every market as open to a potential 48 different individual models, half of which are directional and half okay. of them are which mean reverting. But it's not like you, you get all those orders all the time. You're rare, sure. I mean, 
we have a whole process of weeding out uh, um, going to going to the strongest models and markets at the time that are giving us the greatest expression of mm. what the psychology is at the moment i want to jump i want to jump to a slightly different area um, of risk management because i noted that you have some very clear guidelines of what you expect in terms of drawdown i noted that you said that i think 80% of your drawdown should be less than 10% and only 10 to 20% of your drawdown should be more than 10% and you've as far as i'm aware that's exactly how it's been over a very long period of time how do you know that that's going to be the case because this right. is something that i saw uh, a very very long time ago this is not something in in, yes. in some of your recent information uh, but the fact is you know many 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 years later this is still the case and in an inherently volatile uncertain unpredictable world it's pretty good to be able to uh, be so precise and and uh, and delivering that Well, some things we feel that we're good at, at understanding the distribution of our own uh, traits, and that is like you know we can we're pretty comfortable in telling potential clients here's what it's going to look like correlation-wise, hmm. and and usually you get the quick nod. It's like okay, yeah, we know you're non-correlated. Move on to the next thing. But to me, non-correlation is great right up until it correlates. But we. Sure. We just don't, it's, it's so intrinsic in what we do. So we can pretty much guarantee you that our correlations are going to be a certain way and they're going to be strongly negative to difficulties and other strategies and, and so forth. And, you know, uh, we've run so many studies and, and we, you know, even with the global financial program, because it ran with the same philosophy, we said that back in, uh, you know, 94, 95, 96, we ran studies to show it. It's been consistent for the entire time period. Mm. And because we're very specific about what we're trying to tackle in the marketplace, you know, the risk bucket that we're drinking from hasn't changed and we know how that reacts to everybody else out there, how, how it reacts to the stock market, how it reacts to hedge funds, how it reacts to long and short term. You know. So we're pretty comfortable with that. On the risk side, I feel the same way only because when you're plugged into kind of a natural law, uh, universal claim as it pertains to your trading strategy, it um, it makes it very difficult to lose 80%. Mm. I mean, you really have to over-engineer. You really have to go out of your way. And and if that's the case, usually you pretty quickly know that, that you're you're missing an ingredient somewhere, some structure of a market changed, or you've tried, you've misapplied the principle. And it doesn't mean that that you know, you know, if you're really over-optimizing stuff or you're really heavily data dependent, the data changes. It can be horrifying. Mm. Um, and you can, I think, have a, a. I think one of the reasons why the CTA indices which are a reasonable reflection of the whole industry going back to 1980, um, not only have a, a, a very competitive rate of return, it's like the lowest volatility of all asset classes. Mm. Uh, and, and you could say, oh, there's survivorship bias and there's this and that. But the point being is if that's really a collection kind of, of that uni of the bulk of those traders going after this universal, I think that it says something also about the uh, uh, about how the drawdown profile can be contained. And, and if you were to ask, you know, What is that? What is that going to look like? You know, 20 years from now, the CTA index. I'd say it's probably going to have the same drawdown profile. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to suddenly start going down 40% every other year, or you know, be as erratic as uh, as other things are. Um, for us, we set that. Uh, we wrote about it back in the in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. the, that 80% of our drawdowns in the single digits, and 20% are going to go somewhere between. You know, most of the 10. You know, most of that other 20% are going to be contained in under 15. But we know for certain that. 
a few are going to get out there closer to the 20. And if we, if we trade long enough, we're going to breach that easily. I mean, it's just going to, I mean, your, your biggest drawdown is, you know, theoretically always in front of you. But it, it is kind of uh, ironic. And I've, I've said this to people, uh, and I'm, 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 uh, I'm surprised that you brought it up because rarely do I, do I hear people bring it up. Because it's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, the fact that I think we, you know, now after 20 years, I can say we get the nature of risk as it applies to what we're doing. It doesn't guarantee, you know, X, Y, Z. But um, as much as you can kind of put something in a box and say, I think I understand what's going on here. Um, and it ends up being, I mean, in our entire, you know, combined the two programs, we've had only, you know, two drawdowns that have materially gone past that 10. I think we probably maybe bumped off 11 or something one or two times in there in mm -hmm. that mix. But it would be about exactly the, the breakdown that I said. 80% of them did stay in the single digits. Um, and so we've been able to hold that. Even when we've gotten, you know, uh, you know we got a little uh, off track uh, and focus in the early 2000s where we flatlined there a couple of years and just had some not, not what we're accustomed to in terms of returns. And even in 2010, when... Um, it still didn't. I mean, it pushed us down, but we were able to come back and make new equity highs within a reasonable time period. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost kind of ironic that this is clearly something that is a very strong side to your strategy and, and, and your business. Um, and it's kind of ironic thinking of that when, when, when you go back to the story you started out telling about your near-death experiences uh, in the risk management side. Uh, so, so you clearly, uh, clearly learned something from, from these horrifying uh, events uh, very early on, that's for sure. And you have to stay in the game. Yeah, exactly. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, you know, you, we talk about drawdowns here. We talk about, uh, you know, although they're not, uh, well, at least in, in, to my, in my mind, uh, and compared with, say, equities, uh, you know, a 10, 15, 17% drawdown is, is obviously not, uh, you know, something to worry too much about. But investors do worry about drawdowns and and uh, managers as well and it is a an emotional roller coaster to go through these experiences but given your philosophical background i wonder do you take a completely different approach you know when in terms of the emotional side of a drawdown if if i can put it like that well i certainly try to mm. uh, i i think overall I'm, I'm at least from what most people in the office tell me they, i'm pretty stoic about it I wasn't, you know, in the early years, there was a lot of uh, fear. Mm. And it's not that I don't ever have any fear when we have a drawdown. It just, it's not at all destabilizing or, you know, it's anytime, and you, you know, you spend most of your time not on equity highs. So, mm. you know, I have, you know, in my mind, mental alert levels that are, you know, just roughly down, you know, every 5% mm. to where, I want to go through and I want to check certain things because I have certain expectations. Right. I've also learned the hard way that, you know, you can't get to a you know 20% drawdown without it the first being five. And even though a lot of 5% drawdowns don't mean anything, they're random. It's just part of the distribution of the P&L, profits and losses, you know, of the trades going, going forward. I do know that at times where I've realized I could have, should have, would have, or there were a few things that were not where they should have been, that, right. that the world would... You know, the, the way uh, our application of what we're doing was less than optimal and it could have been more optimal, that, that appears early. I'm a big believer in, in, in the trends of your internal numbers, not the internal numbers themselves. Like right. I could care less about half the numbers that people ask me about that they think are significant. Mm. To me, the question are the trends of the numbers and because they often are anticipatory of something that's going in a certain direction. 
Uh, and when you get enough lined up, it can hopefully be something that will teach you uh, to get on track before it gets, you know, it gets too far out of control. Because it's very, very difficult to recover. You know, once you get down past that 20% level, not only does it get difficult to recover, but if it's if it's a down 25 or down 30, that you're making amazingly different adjustments to your models, mm. you're going to also miss out on that natural mean reversion of your performance. So you're you, you, you find yourself in a very difficult spot. So you don't want to get down too far in the hole, but you also would like to see the process possibly unfolding before it gets there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you you know it can look like it at times, and it's not the case. But more times than not, the solution is before you, mm-hmm. um, but you don't see it because sometimes it's masked. Like you could be making money every month, and if you if a few things were better you know positioned, maybe you would have made more money. Mm-hmm. But you you're just happy that you made money, and maybe somebody else didn't make money, and so you don't dig through the details and say, well, gee, I was making money because you know X Y Z markets were just awesome, but these three models over here are deteriorating, or something's happening. It was just masked by the good run. So trying to do metrics that show us the you know kind of that uh, the internals, if you want to call them that, or some things that are not quite focused correctly, is uh, has always been a huge help for you know for us getting off the track too much. Do you think investors spend too much time trying to completely dissect drawdowns and actually not so much uh, the good runs, meaning really understand why you made money as much as trying to understand why you lost money? Yes. They spend a lot of time trying to give color to whatever they're transmitting on to somebody else. Mm. And, And quite often in the process of collecting information, most of which I don't think is very relevant, they often, I think, miss out on, you know, some of the, what I would call, I think, obvious questions. Mm. Or, um, and, and even if they don't have the question, you can tell quite often from uh, somebody what they think is driving the P&L. Mm. Um, and it leads to all kinds of confusion and at times, I think, bad decision making. I mean, you see this guy is making money and this guy isn't making money. You know, making money doesn't make you a good manager. Over time it does, but in, in the short run, you know, you have two trend followers and one made money last year. It just simply could maybe his portfolio allocation to the one market sector that happened to be more, which is completely random. Mm. Uh, and so you, you fire the one guy and you give some more money to this guy. Well, then the next year he's not going to be so lucky of being, you know, having more risk in the best sector. And uh, you get a lot of trading traders and, and not asking the, the real questions of what's really driving the differences in their performance. Is it, is it something that's intrinsic to the strategy itself, or is it just simply portfolio allocation? Is it because they're high, more highly levered? There's a variety of things that, you know, it doesn't take much to, to pull that out of the data. I mean, we're, we're empiricists after the fact in our office, because we mm. love to look at things after the fact, because 99.9% of the time, you generally ought to see in reality what really is true. Mm. You can be fooled sometimes, or things. You know, there's exceptions to rules, but over time. And so, when you look at somebody and they say, "Hey, we're a short-term trader," and they say, "But why do you correlate to the long-term trading index by 0.67?" I mean, obviously, where you're getting your alpha has a huge overlap with the trend guys, Mm -hmm. and and you can learn so much about what somebody is actually doing, where their exposure is, what sectors, by uh, uh, you know, being reasonably smart about how to dissect the data. That will tell you a lot more than probably you know ninety eight out of a hundred of the questions that you would ask a trader. You can you can see, and then once you see that, it's a lot easier to to, to say is what this person's saying does it match with what they're doing. Mm. 
Tell me a little bit about, uh, just uh, before we go to sort of the last section, I just want to touch a little bit about uh, research. Because clearly the way you approach trading is, 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 is quite different. So I would imagine the way you approach research is, uh, is quite different. What would you say is sort of the key things that people should understand from your research process that helps set you apart? The easiest way to understand our differences is by trying to understand why we trade the way we trade in the first place. Mm. And when we talk about that our our approach is driven, you know, sometimes when people hear your short term and you have directional mean reverting, they pretty much throw you in the basket with everybody else. And it's yeah. not that I don't like being in the basket, a lot of fine traders there. It's sure. just it's not what we do. And by and unfortunately, I mean it's become you know a lot of graduate level classes on behavioral finance in the last five, six, seven, eight years, but it's still a lot of the terms and still everybody, you know, if I use old school language, which I used to do in the 90s because people didn't understand prospect theory, just say fear, greed, and money flow. Sure. Uh, you know, things that people can relate to, which is no different than, you know, uh, and everybody knows the pain. So when I dress it up in the terminology, but then I show how we in the research process tie out these concepts like, you know, loss aversion and how behavioral finance talks about, you know, People always mistake that the you know the, the the joy of you know winning ten bucks is equal to the pain of losing ten bucks, ten bucks. And you know loss aversion in prospect theory shows that people feel the pain of loss you know much greater than the pain of gain. Which sure. any trader after you trade a little realizes that. Or if you have <laughs> you know clients in a fund, or if a client comes to me and says, hey, I, we you know you know go ahead and trade, yeah, we can take twenty uh, percent drawdown. Yeah. Well, as soon as they leave your office, you're like, okay, they can take maybe ten. Yeah. Or maybe seven. Because uh, you know, according to research, it's mostly it's about you know two point six or something is the, mm. the pain to gain type situation. Sure. Sure. So most people they they they're focusing on you know it's like I, when I did my early career, I was like I was focusing on those profits and didn't realize that when the, if the pain was coming, it would be so intense mm. and it's and it, and it can really be destabilizing. And so when you have even professionals miscalculating their own risk tolerance in all sectors of the economy and all things, not just trading, trading just intensifies it. And then you combine that with other principles like, you know, self-attribution bias, you know, the Lake Wobegon effect where all kids are above average, mm -hmm. you know, that everybody, every professional you know in the financial world thinks they're above average. <laughs> well, we can't all be above average. Sure. I mean, we, we, we definitely, you know, attribute to ourself and our own opinions much more uh, than probably objectively would be deserved. Mm. And, you know, you throw in their anchoring and confirmation bias and so forth. And you see when you put these together how dangerous it becomes. And so the, the point is when we're focusing on this, we're focusing on capturing in the marketplace the unwinding of that. And that's what's driving the correlations. And that's what, and it's always going to be there unless people suddenly, uh, the decision-making and, and the, the human nature suddenly does a 180-degree turn from the last you know, 10,000 years of known history, mm. uh, which we don't believe it will. So as long as we can stay on task in terms of adapting to you know, where the risk transfer is going on, where the excitement of the human drama and play is, 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 is optimally able to be observed and watched. And that's really why, you know, it's, it's funny because that's where behavioral finance, that's why it is behavioral finance. It didn't mm. start as behavioral finance. It just started, you know, studying this and they realized that they can, they can more clearly understand uh, the decision-making process when people are under duress or, as, you know, Kahneman says, under risk. Mm. Uh, when you and that intensifies it so that it's easier to see 
the bad decision, you know, if it's just a little minor thing and on and on. But so when you start doing these experiments, they started, you know, making them more financially significant, more about X, Y, Z, and then it worked right into the financial markets because what's more stressful than leverage with a lot of money? Your career's on the stake, and the market's closing in an hour. You got to make a decision. Mm. You know, there's no way out. You don't get to, you know, if you're fighting with your wife or if you're you've got something else going on that could cause you impair your judgment, you have time to work it out. You can put it on hold. You can wait till next week. You know, mm. in almost any other profession, you can put it off for a month. Uh, you can't here, so it makes a perfect laboratory to show how all these principles operate. That you know, traders a hundred years ago, the good ones anyway, were able to discover and understand and, and utilize. Uh, now it's just a more formal way of describing it. So trying to get people to see exactly what it is we're doing so that they're at the expectations. You know, there's nothing worse than having misplaced expectations one way or the other in a financial relationship. It's like, here's what we do. Here's what we, this is only, this is all we do. I mean, mm. not, and so, you know, when somebody says to you, why did you, you know, lose money in 2010? Nobody lost money in 2010. Every fund I owned was up. My hedge funds, my bond funds, my stock funds, my CTAs. Every, every single thing in the universe was up. You, you, what you, what's wrong with you? And it's like, well, when we lose money, it's because nobody's getting beaten up and providing us the opportunity to take the cash out of their pocket because they've misallocated or misjudged or whatever. So it's like our worst month, our worst year, our worst uh, day or quarter, mm -hmm. uh, all are times when every other sector has made money. And uh, so we're going to hurt you at some point. The point is, you know, it's going to be a time period when uh, – you know, it's like 2013, the first quarter. We were sure. down nine in the first quarter. Every other strategy that you could possibly imagine was up. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting, actually, because it would appear to me, at least, that in the last, uh, you know, five, ten years, the CTA industry um, has clearly shifted to European, towards European managers. And I think they certainly present themselves and, and probably structure themselves as much more with a much more scientific approach to research and trading. But it's quite interesting when you talk about the way you've described, you know, your approach today, because people coming to do some level of due diligence, I would think that it's much harder for them to understand the science behind what Uh, a lot of these very quant-driven funds are doing and, and, and obviously the inside of, of all the algorithms, whilst your approach is, is actually, to a certain extent, much easier to explain because it's based on human behavior, which we all know, even though we didn't study it, we all know what pain feels like. We all know what you know gain feels like. Um, it's just quite interesting that, that, that money and investors tend to favor the the more opaque science science rather than the more sort of human nature. Maybe it's not sexy enough to to say that it's based on human behavior. I don't know. I'm sure that's part of it. I think mm. that the if we right now had a you know five billion dollars under management, um, it would be viewed differently. Mm. Um, post crisis, uh, you know, most of the money in the CTA world was raised prior to the crisis. I mean, how many CTAs have gone from, you know, zero to X billion post-crisis? Mm. Not, not too many. And the ones that are in the billions, most of that, they were at equal to or higher numbers before the crisis. Yeah. Uh, the protective mode at the post-crisis time period has been one of such caution in, in addition to having the poor performance uh, and so forth that it's made it, you know, very difficult for anybody, even, even the European managers, to raise money. And many of them have lost assets over the last, you know, four or five years. Mm -hmm. But I do think, and I, and I agree with you, said that there is a perception that there's a bit more of a scientific edge to European managers. Uh, and I think that 
those that some of that is because most of the managers have been around from 2000 forward. And to me, the world, the 2000, you know, the first kind of real intrusion in the marketplace was, you know, Greenspan and long-term capital. Uh, but then it went right back to the spigot in 2000, and the Fed has been tinkering, tinkering since 2000 with interest rates. Mm. They lowered them dramatically, then they, they picked them up in the uh, mid-2000s, and then quickly, you know, in the late, and then back down again to zero for the last six years. But in that type of environment, at least as it pertains to trend following, which is, you know, the maximum profits are going to be made basically, use, you know, in fat tail hedging. Uh, and the Fed has suppressed that, and so strategies that are, trying to game, I mean, but they're spending all their time gaming around the trend, mm. which has become necessary because the trends have been diminished to a certain extent or become noisier to a certain extent because of a lot of this, these, other, these other factors. There is one other factor, though, that I, I guess it's probably my own personal observation, having done a lot of business in Europe in the 90s and, and in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, in the 90s, you know, when I was spending a lot of time in, in you know, London and um, in Paris and, and Geneva and Zurich and doing the whole run all the time, um, there were hardly, there were just very few CTAs. And the reason that I went to Europe to get money was because in the U.S., even though, you know, managed futures, you know, kind of started here and the futures markets here have been around for, you know, 100 years, yeah. um, the tax laws in the U.S. are, are horrible for being a, an investor in a futures, you know, fund. Because you don't, you know, we can't invest offshore like the rest of the world can. Mm. So if you know you invested in an LP here in the states, you pay tax at the end of the year. You pay your manager is twenty percent, and then you pay Uncle Sam a big chunk of the profits, and then they might go away. And it just it's like, and there are other things that they don't let you deduct, and hmm. it's it's not very friendly. Where if, if you're going to invest in you know the Cayman Islands or Bermuda or Bahamas or whatever, uh, as a, as a as a European or Canadian or, or whatever, it, it, so the money came even though the U.S. has always been you know market-oriented and, and speculative, it just was not very favorable. Um, so I think once Europe began to develop their own CTAs, I think European institutions are very pleased and thankful and happy to go in their own backyard right. and prefer to go in their own backyard as opposed to having to come you know, over to um, the U.S. all the time and, and, and so forth. I think it's easier to get through investment committees. It's a easier, you know, it's just easier for everybody. So, sure, sure. so I'm not saying they, they didn't deserve it. They have done very, many of them have done very, very well and are excellent organizations and so forth. But there was always more to the story. Sure. Uh, last section I want to jump into and, and I only got a few more questions uh, that I want to touch upon uh, because uh, we have already taken a lot of your, uh, your time. But... Um, I call it general and fun, and I know you've actually shared a lot of personal stories, which uh, has uh, been 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 quite uh, fun and interesting. Um, but I want to ask you whether you can think of some kind of personal habit that you might have that you think actually um, has helped in your success. Something that you might do on a regular basis um, that that you think actually has been beneficial. Oh, there's a load of things. Um, for to, to, to smush them all together, to try to yeah, you know, sure. put it in a time period that the, the commonality of the things that, that I think are really beneficial to me are, um, shall we say, uh, downtime, more specifically alone time, mm -hmm. uh, time to think, time to recollect, to read, um, think about uh, life, trading, 
uh, everything from religion to politics to whatever. I, I, I get very uh, cranky if I don't have some uh, time to decompress in that regard and, and, and think about things. And, you know, I, everybody who uh, that I know of that has some kind of a, a downtime or alone time, you know, usually has some of their own routines that they want to do. And, you know, I do as well that are, you know, some of them are mm. personal and, and so forth. But uh, that to me is very important. I, I, I have to cool the jets a little bit. Sure. <laughs> and, and at times uh, I've been able to... Um, because I, you know, when your when your job is one of your hobbies and mm. probably your, your biggest hobby, it's very hard to, and it and it happens to be turned on twenty four hours a day. Um, it, it is hard to. It takes effort to to do other things. And I used to do them, like I, you know, some of the weird things about me. I I, I always have unusual hobbies, like a, you know, like magic. With, you know, we've already discussed. Sure. Sleight of hand. Uh, um, you know, also. Uh, Juggling. I used to juggle in my office all the time. It would help <laughs> me think. I mean, if I, it's like it's just enough of a distraction to not be distracted by things that aren't important. But right. Somehow it kind of cleared a channel path, and so I do that. And uh, and then uh, I also taught myself to ride a unicycle when I was little. So, but I never brought that into the office. But <laughs> just kind of these. Uh, you know, it was always trying to find these challenging things that you know. You know, used to do the Rubik's cube and see how fast you can solve it. It was the problem solving, doing things that. You know, it's like when I got involved in trading, it was like here's the thing that's. Everybody says, you know, 90% plus get wiped out and they can't survive. And so mm. it's like, hey, that's the perfect thing. Yeah. You know, you want to you do something that just to, to challenge yourself. And so uh, oh, no, over time, I've realized that I, I've, when your schedule finally gets, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm not, you know, anxious to move back to a city because I can, it'll just fuel my desire to go around, you know, 24-7 <laughs> as opposed to, you know, I'll go home today and I'll, you know, Probably go sit out on my dock and look out at the water, and uh, you know who knows, have a cigar and sit and think for an hour. And sure. uh, that kind of downtime is just magical to me. And, sure. and my wife uh, always jokes with me about this because you know when she says, "Well, I, you know, I really have this task I would like you to do." And to me, the the sitting isn't you know relaxation; it's actually work because sure. it's a work to. It not only helps work, but it's part of the process of how everything the glue stays together. And I have some of my eighty percent, ninety percent of all my best. Trading ideas, thoughts have mm -hmm. uh, come out of those time periods. They never come when I'm sitting in front of the computer. They never come from looking at a stack of data out, you know, outputs and, and printouts. And, uh, um, and that's actually toxic for me. That doesn't uh, no. solve anything. What do you think, actually, what's the hardest about the, the job you do as a, as a fund manager? And, and, and what, what, do you, what, what, what do you find the hardest? It's the bigger picture of the, it's, it's that it's just not trading. I mean, if it were just trading. Yeah. Um, it's one thing when you're managing expectations of clients and of employees, mm. and you're also juggling uh, around with uh, you know future uh, obligations uh, that you know you never know what to expect X Y. And after you you know, I didn't know it when I first started the business. And while I was in Chicago, being with uh, my partner, and my partner handled all the stuff within his firm. And so when I left to come to Michigan, I you know basically really took over the role of CEO, even though I just had it in title prior to that. And mm -hmm. uh, I realized how much I didn't know about running things. And more importantly, how much, you know, I think at that point, maybe we had 23 employees or something, and, and uh, how much you impact people's lives. And this is their career, and it's important to them. Mm -hmm. And trying to communicate to them and, and, and be able to, uh, you know, manage a, a relationship and, and productivity and expectations and so forth. And, uh, 
without ever having done that before, it was quite uh, a learning curve for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, since that time, it's always I've learned a lot. You know, after a while, you learn how to deal with different situations, and you know, no different than dealing with children or dealing with personal relationships. You only time helps you get through it. But that's the, that, that's the biggest challenge. But it's always yeah. you know, I can I can I can talk myself out of any market fear, but I can't. Uh, you know, when you have uh, employees or, or, or clients, or and they don't see things the way that you do, and you've got to realize it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's a service business, yeah. and so you're at times your hands are tied. You can't do you know maybe what you want to do, or so. True, very true. Now, um, I always ask people whether there is a fun fact that they can share, and you've actually shared quite a few that I, I you know, but but maybe. Maybe there's still one left that maybe not so many <laughs> may, maybe that not so many people know about you, even those who are pretty close to you. Is there anything that you uh, that you can think of that's left in the box, so to speak? Most of it has to do with uh, I'll share one. This is kind of sure. weird and outside the box. Yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe there's a tie-in. But you know, I just don't want anybody to take that I I am you know. <laughs> thinking that anybody else should do what I do, just like I don't, you know, don't max out your credit cards to trade futures. Yeah, um, uh, and don't, you know, I've got a whole list of things not to do. But um, because I have such a core central belief system about the nature of reality, and because of studying philosophy and theology and psychology and these different things, um, you you get to the point where you ideas are they matter to you a lot, mm. and, and you're very uh, unhappy with unresolved thoughts in your head and so you try to figure out you know what you want to do and how you want to do it and at times that process can be um, shall we say painful for people around you mm. so pro- perhaps a, 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 an unusual tidbit about me that um, in the big scheme of things is not really perhaps relevant but to me it's relevant because it, it also plays such a role in a thought process mm. is that uh, I uh, you know, back uh, before I started Dominion, as I was studying philosophy and, and all these types of things, I became so enamored with natural law and, and the classics and different things that it started to change my thinking process of how I viewed history and time and, and all kinds of stuff. And to make a long story short, uh, uh, I did something that was very difficult for my family. I was raised a, a staunch conservative Calvinist. Mm. I decided that I was going to convert to Catholicism because of natural law, and I love the scholastics, and I love their Aquinas' interpretation of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And well, let's just say that had a monstrous ripple effect uh, <laughs> with extended family, your family, um, got things resolved with my wife. But um, you know, at the end of the day, ideas have consequences. Yeah. And so often, you know, I keep reminding that when we talk research in the office here, it's like, you know, we're all talking ideas. Remember, all these ideas have consequences, and you need to tie these things out between mm. cause and effect. And what is, you know, who's driving, what is the tail wagging the dog here, trying to understand these principles of, you know, non-contradiction, causality, and, and, and sense perception, which are kind of the core elements of, you know, developing a, a natural law theory a priori. Don't forget these, and 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 don't, and also don't be afraid to go where they might take you, and they may take you in places that you never thought. I mean, I, I'm, if I, you'd ask me, you know, at any time growing up, if I would be, you know, doing the things that I'm doing, believing the things that I believe, that, and a lot of them have been very uh, painful and difficult transitionary phases. But the common theme is, uh, and that's the only thing I can recommend anybody is, uh, is follow uh, 
your ideas and take your ideas to those logical extremes to see whether they're worth following, to see if you really want to do something. And it's easy to sit around and complain or say, I'd like to do this, do that. And, you know, tying it together is, you know, as Lisa says, you know, economics is human action. It's acting and every, all action is toward an end, as Aristotle mm. makes it clear. And that, in a sense, is really truly being human. So. Yeah, no, it's interesting, and it, it kind of ties in with my last question, and maybe you all, I mean, not my second last question, maybe you, you kind of answer it, because it sounds to me like, you know, what you've done is, is and, and I was trying to think of, of some kind of philosophical question to ask you, and, and you know, my limited knowledge in that meant, but it, it almost sounds to me that what Alan Watts said in, in, in some of his work was really, you know, if money was no object, what would you really enjoy spending your life doing? And it almost sounds to me like that that's something you asked yourself at a very young age. Yeah, I don't think I was ever too concerned about the money until I started making some. And then I realized I could be just a subject to a lot of bad <laughs> decision making as anybody else. Yeah. Um, but no, I, exactly. You find out what you love. And I think so much more, you know, I think. When you when you're not really self-aware or self-critical, sometimes you really don't even know what it is you love. Mm. I mean, it, it it takes it's a process to really you know squeeze it out of yourself to say you know I think I like this or I think I like that, but you know what is it really you can't live without, and what is it that's really important to you? And and it's it takes a while just to come down to even getting to the point where you can resolve to to follow that path and follow sure. wherever it goes. Sure. No, absolutely. Now, uh, Scott, my last uh, question. We touched upon it a little bit uh, earlier on, talking about what investors are missing, what they're not asking when they come and, and see people like yourself and so on and so forth. So I have to be critical of myself as well and ask you, what have I missed today? What, what are the questions that I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, I think we covered most of uh, what I would think are the important ones. I'm sure that... Um, you know, I'll go, I'll go through multiple hour, you know, meetings where I will explain prospect theory and then they'll want to get into mathematics and then they want to go, they want to see what kind of computers I have in my server room. Um, and, you know, that's fine. I know they have to look at, you know, kick all the tires and everything, but the, it's always amazing to me. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, the dog that didn't bark type thing. It's, sure. um, the, and to me, the very, very simple and straightforward. And I, and I think for the most part, we've covered it here today, but the questions that I would always ask anybody is, why do you make money, and yeah. why will you continue to make money? Hmm. And those two will very clearly steer you into what actually is the inefficiency, because there are, you know, there's a huge difference between, as we said before, the, the, the kind of the natural law and universal claims as opposed to the particulars. You can be very good at figuring out you know, the last X number of uh, unemployment reports, you know, for two hours after that, the market did X, Y, Z, and that's how we're going to trade. And you, you find all these small inefficiencies, and then as soon as they go away, you find new ones. And, and so if you answer that question, you say, why did I make money, and how am I going to continue? I'm going to continue because I'm smarter than everybody else, and I have faster computers, and a better research staff. And so depending upon what, they, what the manager is saying is what they do, I think those two things, why do you make money, and why will you continue, pretty much will, will force the hand and, and it's not, you're not going to make money because of a formula. I mean, you use formulas, but that's sure. not why you make money. Exactly. And so, you know, being very specific about, you know, what that question is, 
I think those two questions, uh, for me, they would be very important. And after somebody answered that, and I looked at the data of what they have done with it, I think you tie, you tie it up pretty quickly. Yeah. The rest of it's just uh, personal, you know, uh, integrity type evaluation. Sure. No, I agree. And I think that we certainly have, uh, uh, you know, been very fortunate to hear a lot about the why uh, today. And, and as, long as, you ho as long as you feel that I've done... Uh, Uh, yourself and, and Dominion Justice, uh, then, uh, you know, I think that's a good a good place to end. Um, but, you know, before we finish our conversation, perhaps you could uh, let the listeners know where they can reach out to, to you and, and learn more about, uh, you know, yourself and, and Dominion. Certainly. Um, probably the easiest is to go to our webpage, which is www.domcap.com. That's D-O-M-C-A-P.com. And the information there will give you a phone number, you know, address, email, contact information, and so forth on how to get in touch with us. And you'd be most likely getting in touch with uh, Joe Vanderbosch, who is in charge of our client services. That's great stuff. And of course, also, I can say to our listeners that, that you can find all the show notes uh, on the webpage, toptradersonplug.com, and, and, and I'll link uh, a lot of the details uh, from our conversation today with Scott. Uh, there and uh, I also want to say to to the listeners that uh, the emails you receive uh, from me in there there is uh, a way to uh, to thank Scott actually for uh, for his time today uh, by uh, clicking on on a little link and I I would certainly encourage everyone to, uh, to do that and uh, and for sure let me be the first Scott to say thank you so much for all your time all your insights your passions. Uh, And your vulnerability in in, 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 in telling stories that are, uh, of course, very personal. It's been uh, amazing conversation. I really appreciate this transparency and uh, and uh, you know just that you've shared so many so many great stories today. Thanks. I've enjoyed it, Niels. Fantastic. And I hope we can connect at a later date and uh, and find out how how the great work is coming on. So thank you so much, Scott, and and take care. Right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.